are entering the Freedom Hut. Exactly as expected, the left has mounted the third and perhaps final allegation, accusation against Brett Kavanaugh to derail his nomination. We will get into this latest salvo of dishonesty. We will pull this apart and look at what is true and what is not here. Plus, Donald Trump gave an incredible press conference today, talked about what's going on around the world, trade with China, keeping Iran in its box, and oh, so much more. We get that and lots more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Well, the FBI told us they've investigated Judge Kavanaugh six times, five times, many times over the years. They know him very well. It's not going to change any of the Democrats' minds. They're obstructionists. They're actually con artists because they know how quality this man is, and they've destroyed a man's reputation, and they want to destroy it even more. And I think people are going to see that in the midterms, what they've done to this family, what they've done to these children, these beautiful children of his, and what they've done to his wife. And they know it's a big, fat, Con job. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Well said by our president. Well said indeed. It is a big fat con job. My friends, this has just gone too far. This is a complete outrage against truth, against justice, against any decency that we could pretend to have in our discourse, any honesty that still exists in our politics. This is destroying it all. I hate to say it, but this doesn't surprise me in the least. 24 hours ago, almost to the hour, I wrote on Twitter the following, quote, within 24 hours, we will have a third, quote, shocking, unexpected accusation about Kavanaugh. There will be no witnesses or evidence. Accuser will only have vague memory of something happening. It will be from 30 years ago, and Democrats will say this was not a planned hit. LOL. Now, I know that I spend some time talking about predictions and and analyzing what's coming next. I think I'm pretty good at it, which is one of the reasons why I think a lot of you listen to this show over the many, many other choices you have in in analysis of the news. But I am not pretending at all to be some kind of uh, crystal ball operator here. I, I am not acting like this is an incredible call to make because it's exactly what we would expect based on the playbook we have seen so far. Vague, but you know, salacious allegation of sexual impropriety. Talk a lot about, oh, private schools and bad things and and sex and drugs and alcohol and, oh, you know, men groping women. And and well, wait, what exactly? Who did this? When did they do it? Did Kavanaugh actually do anything wrong? Are you sure it was Kavanaugh? No answers to those questions. None. This is a complete cluster. This is a disgrace. This is awful what they are doing to Brett Kavanaugh and his family, and I have told you why it is, and you know why it is. It is because the left 
is unhinged. The left is delusional. And in many ways, they view having a, a, an effective majority on social issues on the Supreme Court as more important than the presidency. It's not just about the future, it's also about the past. And it's about them not wanting to come to grips with the reality of how some of these victories that they've received from the Supreme Court have come down. And also what the consequence, what the cost has been, particularly of the uh, rulings from the Supreme Court on abortion, as you know. Now, this allegation, when it came down, I will say, for a short moment in time, shocked me. It didn't shock me because I thought, oh my gosh, Brett Kavanaugh, it's all over. He should withdraw. This seems like it might be true. It shocked me because... The Democrats are a bunch of blanking, crazy maniacs. This is just not credible. It is, in fact, the opposite of credible. If they present new information, if they give me evidence or a story that holds together and makes sense, sure, I'd be willing to change where I am right now, but I base my beliefs about things like credibility on facts on information on what is verifiable not just on what i wish were true because of the incredibly intense political pressures of the moment you have this uh this woman julie swetnick who has come forward and she gives this whole thing about how she grew up in maryland and she she talks about how she has held security clearances i will tell you this right now that really does not mean, first of all, her clearances were low level. It doesn't mean anything. It has nothing to do with, it's like when people say, oh, but Buck, I had a friend who was sexually assaulted. And I say, well, that's terrible, but that has nothing to do with Brett Kavanaugh. People say, oh, but I knew somebody who didn't want to tell anyone for a long time. Okay, well, that's very sad. And people, you know, sexual assault should be treated with the utmost seriousness, both in terms of a criminal matter, as well as society's obligation to help and assist those who have been sexually assaulted. But that doesn't, mean anything about Brett Kavanaugh. We're talking about innocence or guilt here. Did he do it or not? This is not an overall conversation about rape culture on campus, which, by the way, does not exist the way the left says it does. This is not an overall conversation about drinking and partying and, you know, and sex among among teenagers and and early uh, college students. This is about whether or not Brett Kavanaugh is part of of a sex crime gang that was roving around the D.C. area in the 1980s doing gang rapes. I am quoting from this affidavit, gang rapes of of young women that were not just not reported to the authorities, but not to any adults, never got out in the press. We have only two possibilities here. There are only two possibilities for what has happened or, or, or what did happen when it comes to uh, to Brett Kavanaugh. And, and there's really no way around this. We have two choices. One, Kavanaugh was part of a secret roving gang rape squad in D.C. that was systematically violating women without anyone ever bringing charges or going to the authorities. Or two, this is the most disgustingly dishonest coordinated smear campaign against anyone in public life, certainly in my lifetime, maybe in U.S. history. 
And I think you know where I stand on this one, my friends. It is number two and then some. You get down into what has been said here. What is in this sworn affidavit? Very important points I want to make about this. First, there's no specific allegation of time and place and individual criminality attributable to Brett Kavanaugh. She smears him with lots of, oh, he was a big drinker. He would drink at times. He would party. He was around bad people. He would grope at women. He would grab it. Okay, what woman did he grope? Who did he grope? You're saying he did this on a regular basis. I want a name. When did he grope somebody? Why hasn't that woman come forward? If he's such a groper, did he grope you? When did he grope you? And then she goes into further detail about how he spiked the punch at a party. Now, I know a lot of you listening to this think, wait, hold on a second. I remember what it was like to be 17, 18 years old. We have, we have only two options here as well. Either, yes, he added alcohol to punch at a party. She also said he may have been adding drugs. I mean, he's adding roofies to everybody's drinks at a party, to the, whole, to the punch bowl? No, that's not credible. That's, does he want to pass out too? This makes no sense. You don't, I mean, you're not going to add roofies to the entirety of, anyway, it's just, it didn't make any sense. But did he add booze to punch? I'm sure he did. I'm sure lots of people did. I'm sure lots of people you know did this at parties too when they were underage in terms of drinking. Because high school kids, when they party, don't sit around saying, hey, would you like some Kool-Aid? I'm not saying it wouldn't be a better world if they didn't, but they don't. Kavanaugh said that he would drink. Kavanaugh said that he would party. Kavanaugh basically said, yeah, I was kind of a normal teenage football playing, you know, guy. I would drink, I would party, I had friends, but I also, you know, would go to church and had service products and projects and was a straight A student and captain of the football team. And don't forget that as well. They hate Kavanaugh because of what he represents. This isn't just a male-female issue for the left. This isn't just the culmination of this Me Too uh, movement over many, many months, just waiting for the moment for it to be weaponized in the most uh, potent fashion for a huge political victory, which is how the left sees this. It's also, for the progressives, a major blow against uh, white privilege and against the what they view as a coddled existence that people like Brett Kavanaugh have. Oh, it's all just privilege, it's all handed to them. What they don't seem to understand is that there are a lot of people that grow up in, in affluent suburbs. I grew up in Manhattan. I grew up in New York City. Very, very affluent people around me. I went to a scholarship high school, so I also was around people that were on public assistance, and my friends were, you know, in, in uh, a- the average household income was basically the average household income of my high school. But I knew there were, very, there were people that were very well off and they were around me. And guess what? They weren't Brett Kavanaugh. They didn't graduate top of their class. They didn't go to Yale Law School. I mean, this notion that it's all handed to them, it's so enraging. It's so degrading to achievement and to decency and to good work. But the left loves to do this. Oh, if you're in like a Kavanaugh, if you're like Kavanaugh, it was all given to you. No, it wasn't. Kavanaugh has a record of decades of excellence and decency and achievement. And they're trying to take that away from him. They're trying to take their honor away from him. And I'm telling you, if they can do it to him, they can do it to anyone. And they will. I'm not saying they'll do it to everyone. They'll do it to whomever stands in their way. Whoever they think is a threat to the leftist regime of progressive destruction of the load-bearing walls of our civilization, they will do it to that person. 
whether it's Kavanaugh or anybody else, people keep saying, oh, we should just have we should have Kavanaugh stand down. Absolutely not. Kavanaugh needs to stand and fight. And I know he will. He needs to hold his shield high and we should be right there with him. There is no reason for him to stand down. Everyone should at least agree, even the lunatics on the left, that we should hear from the guy. We should hear from these other people, these accusers, with their preposterous stories. Oh, yes, all the delays. Uh, You know, the woman who can't fly across country has to drive. Oh, just enough time for the second accuser to come out. And oh, is she going to testify or not? Oh, I don't know. Just enough time for the third accuser to come out. It is timed. It is coordinated. This is a plot by the left to derail this nomination and to score a major victory that will have ramifications. This, Folks, this could be the turning of the tide. They know this. If the Republicans don't show enough spine, if Collins and Murkowski and Flake and, you know, who knows who else, if they tuck tail and run on this one, it could mean control of the House and the Senate goes to the very party engaged in these dirty tricks. This is a way of almost nullifying Trump's election. This is a way of creating an entire Congress of resistance if they win on this issue. Those are the stakes and decades of Supreme Court left-wing activism continuing if they can get, you know, oh, we'll get Merrick Garland. We all know it. Look at Souter. Look at the other. Well, it'll be, it'll be, you know, Merrick Garland, he's not some moderate that's going to be down the line on stuff. Yeah, sometimes he's not going to act like a total maniac if he's on the court. But they're, they're only going to be willing to put through somebody like Merrick Garland who's going to give the left what they want on social issues nine times out of ten. They're not going to touch Roby. We're not going to touch abortion. And they know that. Stakes couldn't be any higher here. This is it. This is all-out political war from the left. They have shown us who they are. You know, I, I, I said it last night as well when, when our, our, our friend, uh, my friend, yours as well, I'm sure, Dan Bongino, said that you haven't even seen it yet. I say, that's, that's right, Dan. I wrote this to him last night, and this was on Twitter as well. Here we are, exactly as you and I knew it would be, they say Kavanaugh was part of a secret gang rape, ghoul in, a gang rape group in high school. This is the most grotesque smear campaign in my lifetime. Senate Democrats have no souls. And I said last night, we haven't seen the full extent of Democrat ugliness yet. We will soon get ready. That was 21 hours ago. Now here we are. We saw it coming. We knew they would do this because we understand the nature of this ideological enemy that we face. And we must stand up and fight. There is no negotiation. This is psychological terrorism via character assassination. That's what they are doing. We stand and we fight. And part of that is getting to the truth. And we'll do more of that after this break. I know many of the Democrats. They'll say things and then wink at me. The reason they don't want me is because they want to run the show. They want it. It's power. It's whatever you want to call it. But what they've done here is a disgrace, a total disgrace. And what they do, I I know it's sort of interesting. In one case, they say, he's a fascist. He's taking over the government. He's the most powerful president ever. He's a horrible human being. He wants to take over the entire government, and he's going to do it. We can't stop him. That didn't work. The next week, he said, uh... He's incompetent. I said, well, wait a minute. In one case, I'm taking over the world. And in the other case, he's incompetent. They tried that for a week. That didn't work. Uh, Look, these are very dishonest people. These are con artists. And the press knows it, but the press doesn't write it. 
con artists. Trump is is you know on the front lines here as well, and I'm I'm so happy to see people were. I was seeing reports. I was seeing re- reports that uh, you know he was going to abandon. He was going to abandon Kavanaugh. I thought to myself, there's no way Trump's going to abandon Kavanaugh based on this. I haven't even gotten into the details yet here. And by the way, I've just seen. I was reading in the break. Uh, there was a. Um, there's been a release of what doc, it looks like Dr. Ford is going to, uh, ins- well, at least her written statement, but a written statement is essentially what you already know. The only new detail that she puts out there, remember, Ford, Professor Ford, uh, is saying that uh, she brought up with her husband in 2012 that she needed a second door when they're doing a remodeling of her home because she was so scared and traumatized about what happened 30 years ago, plus with, with Kavanaugh. Uh, that's, remember now, my, uh, she, she was not, in fact, she was not raped. She does not claim that she was raped. She claimed that he kind of grabbed her and put his hand over her mouth for a second. And she was so traumatized, she says, 35 years later, that she needed a second door added to her home. I mean, I, I can't say anything about that other than that. That just strikes me as n- noteworthy. Also, the media today running around saying that there's corroboration of her account. Remember, this is the member got three accusers. Second accuser, you'll notice that's kind of faded away. That one was too weak. Ronan Farrell, they they went they went with something that wasn't wasn't strong enough. That was looking really weak, looking shaky. They had to go all in with this third accuser. And notice there's been a there's been a progression as well. The first accuser, kind of the hardest to to, to knock it down. One thing in common with all of these, none of them can give a definitive day, time, and and uh, and and any kind of witness or evidence for this. It's all just yeah, a long time ago this thing happened to me, and you know the, the first accuser can't tell us what year or where it happened. The second accuser can't even tell us if she's sure Kavanaugh did it to her. And she had to ask her lawyers for six days. And the third accuser doesn't say Kavanaugh did anything specific to her or anyone else, but he was just kind of there and was a drunk lout and was pouring, uh, you know, grain alcohol into, into the punch bowl. But the the craziest thing she says is that Kavanaugh was at these parties where there were gang rapes occurring. Well, let, let's let's address this. Let's pick this apart, this allegation that they've made, because it doesn't hold together. We will talk about why. In just a moment. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Well, I think what we're doing is systematically destroying 2,500 years of Western jurisprudence and three centuries of American law on the basis that, well, it's a Supreme Court, so it's special or uh it's not a criminal case, so these rules don't apply. And we forget that the Constitution is our secular Bible. Whether you're, you're under examination in Little League or a grammar school, we get inspiration for every process in our country. Our daily lives are based on the, the inherent right to meet your accusers, to cross-examine, not to bring into evidence hearsay, to have detailed evidence, to have statutes of limitations. So we're going to throw all that out because uh, the means... Uh, are necessary for this noble end of, of stopping Brett Kavanaugh. 
And whether the, the left likes it or not, they're making a Manichaean choice now. Millions of Americans are watching them and they're saying to themselves, whatever my views are, are Donald Trump for or against, pro or con, they're making this, they mean the Senate uh, Democrats and this Me Too radical movement and the effort to destroy Kavanaugh. They're saying we're the issue. And exactly. a lot of people are saying, if you're going to make me, if you're going to make that choice, I don't want to vote against jurisprudence and the U.S. Constitution. And I don't know if they know it, but they're forcing people to make a choice. You're either with us or against us. A lot of people are going to say, I'm with the Constitution, the tradition of American law Boy, I hope and so. fairness. Very well said by Victor Davis Hanson, one of my favorite contemporary uh, writers. And he's, he's so right. I mean, the, this, the, I was talking earlier this hour about the stakes here. And I meant it in political terms, right? This is control of the House, the Senate, the the direction of our government, and with it also, along with all that, the Supreme Court for perhaps decades to come. Uh, also, I would note that there is the very real, I mean, if this is this is what we see with what would be the fifth seat going to a constitutionalist on the Supreme Court. Just imagine what would happen when Trump wins in 2020, and I am very confident that he will, when it comes time because of, let's say, a retirement, and we all could guess at who would be the next one to likely retire, for Trump to appoint the sixth Supreme Court justice. I don't know what the level of outrage is beyond this, because this seems to me to be do anything, say anything, go to any level in order to stop this. I, I don't I can't I can't imagine what depths of depravity the left will sink to beyond this. I just can't even think of it. And yet here we are. Uh, they are so willing to tear at the very fabric of our sense of justice and fairness and due process and decency in order to stop Kavanaugh. They're playing all these games, games with the timing, games with who gets to, who gets to even ask his accuser questions. Originally, they're making fun of him or making fun, rather, of the Republicans because they're going to have men asking the questions. Then they bring in a woman. They're making fun of the Republicans for bringing in a woman to ask the questions. It's just it's just throwing mud. It's just smearing. It's just trying to slime. There's no intellectual honesty in any of this. And there are real people being harmed here, my friends. There are people whose lives are being caught in, in crossfire. Not the least of which, of course, Kevin, but also his wife and the, and children. Can you imagine if the if the majority of the national media and one of two political parties saying that your dad, you know, when you were a, a little kid, your dad was a was part of a rape gang. You know, your dad, who was your hero, who was your protector, who you know w w meant the world to you was part of a rape gang, and people were calling for him not just to be investigated, but to lose his job, lose his career, and be thrown into prison. And it's a lie. And you know it's a lie. It's not okay what Rachel Maddow and CNN and all these others are doing. It's not okay. It's just unacceptable. It's not just politics as usual. This is destroying people's lives. Because the left is full of radicals, zealots, people that would rather get their way and have their beliefs uh, be the dominant force in government over 
very basic human decency. You have now into the, into the into the details here of the third allegation. You know, four to be tomorrow. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be quite a day tomorrow. That much is for sure. Uh, but Kavanaugh's lawyer. Let's start with that, and then I'll get into some of the specifics of the third allegation. We knew there were going to be more. I was told by a senator a week before the second allegation came out, there's going to be more. Just Not because he thought, oh gosh, there's just because this is the way. If you were constructing, if you were scripting out how to stop Kavanaugh's nomination, this is how you would do it. Time each one for maximum impact. Make sure that each one can be essentially impossible to disprove and make them more salacious as they go along. Kavanaugh's lawyer, Beth Wilkinson, said this about the third accuser. Play 21. None of that ever happened. And everyone who is calling and contacting us who was at parties with him has never heard of that. And these are the type of allegations that they were going on, 10 or 12 parties. This is not just one time. She's claiming this happened for years and no one else can verify it and no one else is saying it. Now, they allege in there that there's other people that can. Why haven't they brought those people forward? So Julie Swetnick is the accuser here, and and Kavanaugh's lawyer. You'll notice Kavanaugh's on the record. He makes definitive and declarative statements of fact. I do not know this person. I was not at this party. I never had sex in high school. I mean, he is saying things that, if he were lying, wouldn't be hard to prove that he is lying, because he's trying to show, I'm the one who says facts. I'm the one who presents my calendar of all the events contemporaneously from that time period. Does not show this party. Does not show any of this. And I would note that the Swetnick allegation that came out today, the third accuser, all of a sudden magically has in, in her affidavit about, about Beach Week, which just happened to appear hours earlier in the Kavanaugh calendar. Oh, gee, I, I guess that's a coincidence. So many coincidences here. Media just, oh, I, I can't I can't imagine how that would happen. Julie Swetnick has some questions. Uh, questions to answer. And my friend Charles Cook over at National Review does a very good job laying some of these out. Like, for example, given how serious these allegations are, why, why didn't why didn't Avenatti and Julie Swetnick go directly to the police? Why did Avenatti and Swetnick not go to the press? Why go directly to Avenatti? Could not be independently corroborated by anybody in the press. Where are these witnesses? This is the charge of gang rape. Isn't it not a little bit strange that there are only two details provided and they happen to be public knowledge already, like Beach Week, for example? Why is there nothing new in this affidavit? Ah, yes, indeed. Kavanaugh says he's never heard of the accuser. Is there anyone who could testify to the contrary? If so, how did they meet? Let's see if Kav... Prove that Kavanaugh is lying. They can't, though, because Kavanaugh's not lying. Avenatti is lying. And Swetnick is lying. Lying. Now, people keep saying, why would anyone lie? Why put themselves through this? They're pretending to be stupid when they say that. Plenty of people lie about far more serious uh, and specific sexual allegations than what we've had against Avenatti. I mean, against, pardon me, against um, Kavanaugh so far. It happens. We know it happens. I've mentioned them here on the show, just at the top of my mind. Crystal Gail Mangum, the Duke Lacrosse case. The UVA fraternity gang rape accuser totally made it up. And then you also have a very famously Tawana Brawley. 
Uh, and there are there are lots of others that we could talk about too. But they don't want to get too deep into the facts here. They want to keep this very, very vague. Now, here's what we do know based on Swetnick's account. She claims that there were uh, multiple, in fact, 10 of these parties. She says, quote, I, I observed Brett Kavanaugh drinking excessively at many parties. I likewise, this is from the sworn affidavit, folks. I likewise observed him to be verbally abusive toward girls by making crude sexual comments. But this is not a criminal. This is nothing. This is totally, he says things that I don't like to girls. I mean, she's just trying to, she's trying to smear him. I also witnessed Kavanaugh behaving as a mean drunk. I have been told by other women that this conduct occurred in Ocean City in Maryland. During the years 1981 to 82, I became aware of efforts by Mark Judge, Brett Kavanaugh, and others to spike the punch at house parties. I already talked to you about this. That seems strange. Wouldn't the punch always be spiked at house parties? Wasn't there always alcohol in it? And weren't they drinking from the same punch? I also witnessed efforts by Mark Judge, Brett Kavanaugh, and others to cause girls to become inebriated and disoriented so they could be, quote, gang-raped in a side room or bedroom by a, quote, train of numerous boys. I have a firm recollection of seeing boys lined up outside rooms of many of these parties waiting for their turn with a girl inside the room. These boys included Mark Judge and Brett Kavanaugh. Yet, she can't say that they actually took part in any of this. They're just waiting outside of a room where she says there was a gang rape going on. Well, why isn't there the specific allegation of the rape? And who was the woman being raped? It goes on. Quote, in approximately 1982, I became the victim of one of these gang or train rapes where Mark Judge and Brett Kavanaugh were present. Shortly after the incident, I shared what I had had transpired with at least two other people. During the incident, I was incapacitated without my consent and unable to fight off the boys raping me. I believe I was drugged using quaaludes or something was put in my drink. If that was the case, how did she know that Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge were there? If she was incapacitated and unable to consent, how could she know who was in the room and who was around her? Also, how would she know that Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge were not actually involved in raping her. Why doesn't she name anybody who was involved in raping her? Why doesn't she name any of the people who were at the party? Why doesn't she name anybody who was at any of the parties? And oh, since we're asking questions, why was she three years older than Kavanaugh? She was in college based on the timeline, the factual timeline here, including the sworn affidavit. She was in college and still hanging out with the high school kids, including at these rape parties? Why would she continue to go to these parties after the horrible experiences that she witnessed? Why didn't she call the police? She's not alleging that there was just some groping, a little bit of you know, sexual impropriety, drunken horseplay, whatever it is that people are going to call some of this different stuff. She's alleging gang rapes. She's alleging the kind of criminal activity that would send people to prison for decades. Even a 17-year-old, even somebody who was not legally an adult, decades in prison. She said nothing? The police knew nothing? Parents weren't told about this? This wasn't a massive scandal? Who believes this? This is delusional. This does not hold water. This is not credible. This is a, a really a, a crying out from the left wing of the American Democratic Party that has become so 
deeply invested in the Supreme Court and, yes, the protection of abortion at all costs, at all times, on demand, that they have had a collective nervous breakdown here. This is insanity on a mass scale. And there are very real casualties from this. And this isn't just even about Kavanaugh. This is about what happens in the Amer- what happens in this country the day after Kavanaugh's up or down vote. What happens in this country going forward? Think of the precedent this sets. Think of how drunk with power the left will be if they get away with this. We only have one option, and that is to fight. Fight to the end, fight for the truth, no matter what, at any cost. If they want to make this all in, we have to make this all in. Let's see who's telling the truth. Let's bring people under oath. Let's question them aggressively, honestly, but aggressively. We cannot allow this to stand. I I do not say this to you often. I've never said this to you before about something like this. This is a the future of the republic is at stake moment. It may not feel that way, but it is true because of the ramifications for our legal system, for justice, for jurisprudence that this will have for years, perhaps decades to come. This one incident and how it ends up could change the character of this country. And I refuse to cede this battlefield to the most depraved, disgusting, and dishonest elements of the progressive left. I refuse. To the Democrats, they knew about this since July the 30th. They chose to do nothing about it. For them to complain about the process is like an arsonist complaining about a fire. The allegations against uh, Judge Kavanaugh are collapsing. The takeaway for me is that when it comes to Donald Trump, there are no boundaries, there are no rules. Whatever you need to do to destroy him or his agenda is okay. And that's very sad. This is about outcome politics. Whatever we have to say about Kavanaugh to stop him, we'll say. It's been disgusting. They've had this allegation since July. They're playing politics with it. There's been delay and deception, and it won't work. It's going to blow up in their face. Lindsey Graham, strong on this one. Got to say, you have to give Lindsey credit. You know, he's he's definitely not one of these uh, GOP Wafflers, you know, they're they're looking, they're like, okay, how's this gonna go? I don't know. You know, they're just they're not turncoats quite yet, but they got the other coat in one hand just in case. You know, re- ready to flip. I mean, what I, I've heard Kasich is talking about this now. Oh my god. I know what I know what he's saying about this. That that guy is am- among the among the most odious of, of GOP uh baggage that we carry around. Oh we've got some very, very Strong folks joining the next hour to weigh on this one. I've got my friend Jesse Kelly, who many of you know from a podcast we've done here. He's also a radio host, former Marine, great guy. And we're going to spend some real time with Andy McCarthy, too, talking about the legal aspects of this. We're also going to Rosenstein. I've got uh, some some UN and international relations stuff to talk to you about. So we, we, we're not just going to just pound this issue the whole time. But uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I thought today... This morning, I mean, this morning, and I was prepared for this, but yet you can never really prepare for it. I knew it was coming, but it also shocked me at the same time. What is wrong with people? The the lack of of decency and sense of any accountability. This this just it's not credible. It's terrible what they are doing, 
and the viciousness that I'm getting from people, including other jur- of journalists, left-wing journalists were saying, you know, why, telling me, why do you support rapists? You know, why, why are you, why isn't rape a big deal to you? And I'm looking at them saying, are you a moron? I mean, I really have to ask them that. Are, are, are they morons? Uh, you know, I, I want to tell you, you know, I've got a, a personal anecdote I want to share with you about all this, just you know, that, that, that colors my thinking about, you know, what would happen if you were around and, and there was a, you had a sense that there was a sexual assault going on. I mean, the claim here is that Kavanaugh was, in the, was around when there were gang rapes going on. It's just ludicrous. Last thing I'll point out, the next person that refers to an FBI report as being worth anything obviously doesn't understand anything. FBI explicitly does not, in this or any other case, reach a conclusion. Period. Period. So, Judge, there's no reason why you should know this. The reason why we cannot rely on the FBI report, you wouldn't like it if we did, because it is inconclusive. They say he said, she said, and they said. Period. So when people wave an FBI report before you, understand, they do not, they do not, they do not reach conclusions. There you have Joe Biden, folks. Back in 1991 as a senator at Clarence Thomas's hearings, you know, you're hearing kind of a different tone today. People seem to think the FBI is going to solve this caper. No, that's not what happens. Background investigation just means they gather information, including information that is completely and thoroughly unvetted, and they present it to the Senate. And then the Senate makes of it what they will. It is a political process. But here's the issue with what we've already seen. The FBI has put forward, I mean, we already have these sworn statements. We already have the allegations. Who else are they supposed to talk to? The other people say it didn't happen. The other people that are supposed to be witnesses have already come out and said, I'm not a witness, nothing happened. This whole thing is is such a complete and utter disgrace. It really is. It is it is hard. It is hard to see people make such a mockery of of reason and justice and honor and integrity. Uh, and, and I do believe that there are many, many, many on the left who believe this stuff. There are some who are clearly being cynical. I mean, Michael Avenatti is you know, the, all the lawyer jokes that you ever hear. You know, you know what's the difference between a, a carp and a lawyer? Like one is a, a bottom sucking, uh, you know, just or whatever, a scum sucking bottom dweller. The other is a fish. And all those jokes are basically about Michael Avenatti, who is, uh, as I understand it, going to be doing an interview uh, with my colleagues at the Hill shortly. I was unable to do that interview because I've got to do this radio show. Otherwise, I would be the one uh, pushing him on these issues. I would be the one saying, excuse me, sir, explain to me why your college-age client was going to multiple high school uh, parties where there were gang rapes occurring and keep going and kept going to them and not reporting them. That seems rather strange. She would have been 20 years old? My friends... If I were 20 and at a party with high schoolers, first of all, people would be like, what are you doing at a party with a bunch of high schoolers? But if I was at a party with high schoolers when I'm 20, and I know when you're 18, 20, I mean, there's there's crossover. But um, generally speaking, you know, there's a high school and college separation socially. And but if I were at a party and 
and I was the the adult, uh, adult in the room, so to speak. And there was a uh, there were a bunch of sixteen and seventeen year olds, and there was a, a, a gang rape occurring. There is no universe in which one I allow it to happen without intervening and stopping it. You know, and I, people could say, "Oh, Buck, it's easy to say that." Uh, I, you know, I've I've uh, I've been in situations where I've had to tell somebody, "Hey, you know, lay off." I've told you all the story when it was actually a girl that I was dating at the time, and I ran back to my dorm, and there was a groper in her room, who and it's it's still to this day, and I think some of you, well, I'll give you just the the quick version of it. When I was in college, I was uh, I was never in a fraternity, but I was invited to a, a fraternity party, and I had a, a weird feeling and I had a, a very sweet uh, girlfriend at the time. Uh, I was a uh, sophomore and she was a freshman and she, you know, she was, uh, she had a, a, a crew race the next day and I had a weird, I just had a weird feeling and I wanted to go check up on her cause she was staying home cause she had to get up at four o'clock in the morning and I was out with friends and I went to check up on her and I went back to her room and I remember feeling this very odd, you know, this very strange sensation of um, something's wrong here. Because I went to leave a little, we had these little whiteboards on the doors, and I went to write on her whiteboard. And when I touched the whiteboard uh, for her for her room to say, you know, good luck tomorrow. We would do this, and we were all in the crew team together. I went to write, you know, good luck tomorrow at the race. You know, you know, XOXO, or, you know, I was a college kid, whatever, you know, big heart or something. I know some of you guys are groaning right now, but anyway, I was going to write a little note on, on her whiteboard, and when the door opened, when because I, I touched it, the door was open, and I thought that's kind of weird. She you know, we usually sleep door locked, you know, and and the whole thing I will tell you was strange. Why was I? I mean, I'd never done this before. Why would I go to her room and kind of go check up on my girlfriend? Now I assume that she was probably in there with her. She had two roommates, so all the girls were probably in there sleeping, or you know, I didn't know if she was alone or not. But and the door opens up a little bit. And I peek in, and there's an interior room. It's two rooms, and there's an interior room. And I see some some guy, some individual there. And I thought, well, what? It's in the dark, too. And he's kind of, cr- like, hanging over. And then I look, and I see, and I realize my girlfriend is actually asleep. But this guy, this creepster, has gone into a room and is leering over her. And I see her face, and I run right to her. You know, I I, you know, I throw the door open. I you know you know, honey, are you okay? And this guy, we kind of like, you know, shoulder checked each other as he ran as he leaves. And then I end up, you know, and I talked to her. I said, "What happened?" She says, "You know, that guy had his hand because I couldn't see. Remember, it's an interior dark room. Had his hand on my. He just put his hand on my breast when you, you know, when you yelled out my name." This, uh, this all happened. I remember it very, very clearly. And I just remember taking off afterwards and running around that campus uh, dorm room, or dorm building, with bloody vengeance in mind. Uh, I never fa- I didn't find the guy. I didn't find him. And I found out later on that he had taken... Uh, he essentially hidden a friend of mine hours later found him. He had found an open door and hidden in that. And he wasn't from, he wasn't a college kid. I, I would, it was a very small school. He wasn't from our school. He was just some stranger on the campus. And 
you know, I of course followed the police. We, you know, we went to talk to the, the, the police the next day and the whole thing. But, you know, my point just being, I mean, if I had found that guy, it would have gotten very violent. I mean, uh, to the, you know, maybe he had a knife. I mean, it's probably for the best that it, I didn't find him in that sense. But, I mean, I can tell you this. I was, I had, I had vengeance in mind. And uh, I was not a small college kid. And, you know, I can just tell you this. If anything like that was ever going on at a party and I was there and any of my friends, any guy that I liked and trusted and, and that I found to be honorable was there, we would have had vengeance in mind too. Never would have happened. And that's just part of my thinking about all these allegations that we're seeing. I just don't believe it. I don't believe what they're saying about Judge Kavanaugh. To just dismiss out of hand as a, a shameful smear campaign, these allegations strikes me as um, not what's appropriate in this setting. It is Judge Kavanaugh who is seeking a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court uh, and who I think now bears the burden of disproving these allegations uh, rather than uh, Dr. Ford and Ms. Ramirez. Leader McConnell just said that Judge Kavanaugh, quote, deserves the presumption of innocence. What, what I believe is we ought to get to the bottom and find the facts in the way that the FBI has always done. There's no presumption of innocence. No presumption of innocence. Kavanaugh bears the burden of disproving his allegations. We have seen a bass Ackwards version of process and the law from these various Democratic senators. Who, who can set things straight here uh, other than yours truly? We are joined now by the one and only Jesse Kelly, folks. He is a a former congressional candidate and Marine. He is the host of the Jesse Kelly Show on 950 KPRC in Houston. My uh, brother in the iHeartMedia family now. Mr. Jesse Kelly, good to have you. Great to be here, my brother. Great to be here. These are exciting times. Oh, my gosh, they are. I got to tell you, I was walking around the newsroom today at TheHill.com and there was just this general sense of shock, regardless of what of what people believe or don't believe. This is just some next level stuff. And then as soon as I was able to shake off the, oh, my gosh, you know, he's actually Avenatti is accusing Kavanaugh of being part of a secret gang rape gang. I looked around and thought, Jesse, how does anybody believe this? I mean, how does anyone actually think that this was really happening and nobody knew about it? This is crazy town. That's the big problem, Buck. They don't. They don't. Even even with Democrats, this is simply not getting traction. Now, these same Democrats are going to wink, wink, nod, nod. We know it's not true because we're trying to stop Kavanaugh thing. But this has been for see, I've always admired how the Democrats play politics. They play dirty and rough and they're all the way committed. They play to win. I've always thought they were better at it, at, at, better than Republicans at it. And this has been the worst case of overplaying your hand that I have ever seen in my entire life by a political party. I think if they had just left it at Ford, they would have been way better off than they are now with these second and third accusers coming out and their stories looking so bogus, because now it all looks bogus. We still don't know what happened with Ford. Yeah, Ford looks bad. It doesn't look like it happened. She has no real proof. There's nothing there. But at least it was semi-something you had to look into. But I mean, yeah, I, I would call it semi-plausible, but highly suspicious. This thing today, I mean, this, the second allegation, by the way, isn't even really an allegation. I mean, when you really get down to it, she doesn't even know it's him. When you don't even know if it's somebody that did something that's, by the way, 
uh, you know, n- not a crime that anyone's going to investigate. You know, the, a year later, never mind ten years later. Uh, you know that that doesn't even really count. And the third allegation is just not credible. It's just not credible. It's not. It's not. And I don't understand how they could screw up that badly. Whenever we're talking about the Democrats, they look terrible right now. And we are approaching a midterm where they were uniquely fired up. And I understand they have to show their base they're fighting and whatnot, but they look awful to everybody right now. They really, really look bad. It's so blatantly a smear and blatantly political that I really think they've screwed the pooch bad on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. If tomorrow, who knows? I, by the way, you know, do you, do you have a prediction for whether Ford's even going to show up? I don't think she's showing up, by the way. I think she's going to claim, you know, survivor trauma or something and just say she can't. I think that she will because I think that there will be an extreme amount of pressure on her from the left to show up because there is there's no other there's no other play. This is the last play for the Democrats. The second and third accusations, as we just talked about, are ridiculous. They're the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Not credible at all. And I just note that one they're they're taking the vote on Friday. If Ford doesn't show up, that's it. Their last play is to get a tearful, semi-truthful looking testimony from Ford on TV. If if they don't have that, they have nothing. Kavanaugh's in. Yeah. And and if one of these three allegations is is truly beyond beyond any doubt, just uh, annihilated as false. I mean, I think they're all false. But if one of them. You know, and, and by the way, the third one's getting pretty close. There's some stuff here. And the first Ford, there's a discrepancy about how many people were at the party. Now, people will say, oh, that's hazy memory. But once you have a clear, uh, a, a clear lie, essentially, that any one of these accusers is caught in, the whole thing just collapses because then it's, oh, now it's a coincidence that people are coming forward and just straight up lying about this guy. I mean, so I, I think that there's there, that's a greater possibility than a lot of people realize right now. But and Jesse, I, I want to, because we've been talking about this a lot on the show, like, Andy McCarthy later to give me some of the uh, the legal analysis of this, as well as Rosenstein. But, you know, you have been uh, not shy, as is, as is the case with uh, with a, what, a six-foot-five Texan. You tend to be not shy about uh, your day. feelings on, on women in infantry combat roles, because this is uh, General Mattis has been talking, or Secretary of Defense Mattis has been talking about this this week. A lot of pressure on this one. First of all, just bring up to speed. What's happening right now with women in infantry combat roles, and uh, what are you thinking about it? Well, for one, I'm six eight. You can't short me out of that last three inches, Buck. You're six but, eight. Uh, That's just not even right, man. I, I, oh, anyway, go ahead. That's just too much height. No, look. Uh, what's happening is this was obviously a surprise, surprise in Obama policy. Ash Carter put it in back in 2013. Then Defense Secretary Ash Carter that said women can now serve in infantry units. And women have no place in infantry units. They do not belong there. They should be banned from there. The military is not your social experiment zone. It's not there to make you feel better. It's not there so I can do anything a man can do. No, you can't. Women are physically weaker than men. Their hips and legs are not built for it. That's why they're piling up lower body injuries. The Pentagon's own study showed that these women are worse at every single thing. They did a bunch of contests between mixed-gender units and all-male units. I believe they did 134 tests. The all-male units outperformed the women on 93 of them. Women get hurt more than twice as much. And when they're not getting hurt, they're getting pregnant. We're already seeing this on Navy ships where they integrated. 16 out of 100 women in general have to leave the ship because they get knocked up fraternization is happening it doesn't work we are not israel 
We don't have to put every man, woman, and child on the front lines with a rifle in their hand. We have 325 million people in this country. Women have plenty of places they can serve. Get them out of the infantry. Now, Jesse, you know, you, you are a Marine, so people are going to, you know, they have to take your opinion uh, with the, the gravitas that it brings on this. But I'm going to assume, because people get very attached, I mean, people who have never served in the military get very attached to this, and they always like to put forward, you know, one or two particularly outspoken females, and they'll say, you know, this is wrong, and I have a right to serve. I assume you're getting a tremendous amount of heat for this. I am, but I don't care. I, I don't care about the heat I get from delusional people who want to live in a fantasy land. And yes, of course, there are one or two women out there occasionally that will be able to make it through the legit training, these super physical women. Even if they make it through initially, their bodies break down faster. And they get knocked up anyways. This happens. It's not, not something we have to be shy of. And by the way, I'm not indicting the women. That's what happens when fit young people get together. When fit young men work with fit young women, somebody ends up sleeping together. That's called yeah, biology. biology. I knew, I was going to say, I knew a very wise, very wealthy entrepreneur, much, much older than me, used to always say, biology wins. And, you know, it's this thing that he would say about, and it is very true. It's kind of like Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park, life finds a way, biology wins. Uh, you know, Jesse, uh, I, I got to say, this uh, do you have do you have anything before we let you go? Anything that you're predicting for the rest of the week? I mean, let me ask you this: Do you think Kavanaugh gets through? I have thought I've been predicting for two weeks now that Kavanaugh would not get through. That Jeff Flake and Corker and Collins and these weenie spineless senators would cave. I have always thought that, and I still think that that's a good possibility if Ford testifies. If that lady sits in front of that in front of that Judiciary Committee and give some tearful testimony about how Kavanaugh destroyed her life, I think those senators will flake out. Who is, is, yeah, I was going to say, who is the worst elected Republican on the national stage in the country right now? Is it Jeff Flake? Because I, I put it, I put my money on Jeff Flake. Jeff Flake, and it's not particularly close. Our only benefit <laughs> when it comes to Jeff Flake is that it came out that Kavanaugh was a virgin for most of his adult life, and so Jeff Flake can probably relate to that. That's all we've got. <laughs> all right, everybody. Jesse Kelly, host of the Jesse Kelly Show, former Marine and buddy of, of mine in this show. Uh, go check out his his podcast. And also, if you're in the Houston area, go check out. It's an iHeart station, folks. So he's, he's in the iHeart family now, too. 950 KPRC. What time during uh, the night? 7 to 8 Central Time at night. And catch me online, Streams National on iHeart. Fantastic. Jesse, thank you so much, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Appreciate you, Buck. We got an amazing hour coming up here. Annie McCarthy up next. Do you have opinions that you feel like you can't express? I think we all do. Are you looking for a place to stir up some conversations? Let your thoughts and your opinions be heard. I want to introduce you to an alternative social media site, Snippy.com. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without any suppression from administrators. Check in for a quick update about current events or spend hours scrolling through users' posts. Write your thoughts and strike up conversations. Snippy's founders have intentionally created a forum where anyone can feel free to express their thoughts, frustrations, ideas, anything really. It's a place where discussion is valued, a place where your opinion matters, and it's totally free. Go to snippy.com now to express yourself. No shadow banning, no character limit, no suppression of conservative thought ever. 
Check out the website at snippy.com or download the app. No censorship, no agenda. Join snippy.com to get the discussion rolling. You need to come in front of the Judiciary Committee and answer our questions. The American people need to know what took place. Who was in that meeting? Was Andy McCabe in that meeting? Was Lisa Page? Was Peter Strzok? It's in McCabe's notes, right? It's in McCabe's notes. So McCabe must have been there, but who else was there? We need to talk to those people as well. So um, this is the kind of thing that, again, when you're the guy running the Justice Department, which is what Rod Rosenstein is in effect doing, you can't be making statements like that, even if you are joking around. Rod Rosenstein. Everyone's saying, will he stay? What's the reality of his position at the DOJ? And is he involved or was he involved in some shady business meant to undermine the president of the United States, whom he actually works for, which I think people forget. We've got the man who can answer a lot of these questions with us now, Andy McCarthy with us now. He's, of course, senior writer at National Review, also a Fox News contributor. You're seeing him everywhere on this issue. Andy, always great to have you. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Buck. Great to be with you. So I want to ask you in some detail about Rosenstein, and you wrote a a lengthy and, and really excellent piece outlining what's been going on with Rosenstein at, at DOJ and his resistance work. But just putting a pin in that for a moment. I mean, I've been talking about this a lot today already on the show. What is your take on this late on this latest Kavanaugh accuser situation? Uh, I mean, I think you could probably guess. I, I, I just think this whole thing is just beyond words in terms of how not credible and disgusting it is. But I need to hear your take as somebody who was a federal prosecutor for over 20 years. Yeah, I think, Buck, that all of this is a delay tactic. I've thought that from the beginning. I'm not convinced uh, that Dr. Ford is going to testify tomorrow. I guess we'll see. I could be proved wrong on that. Uh, But I think what they've been trying to do from the beginning is delay this thing. They sat on it. They knew about it at the very beginning. Um, There is more information about this nominee than any nominee in the history of the United States for the Supreme Court and maybe for any position, uh, the purpose of an FBI background check is to flag issues for the Senate and give them enough information to help in the process of making them or having them be able to make a discriminating appraisal about whether the candidate is fit for the position. An FBI background check is not uh, an invitation to do a full-blown criminal investigation, particularly of crimes or alleged crimes that, number one, the FBI doesn't have jurisdiction to investigate because they're state crimes, and number two, that no state prosecutor would take on because under constitutional law and state law, they've been time-barred because they're 30 years old. So I, I just think this is a fiasco, and my, my belief is that grassley, because all this was time-barred, we had 31 hours of testimony from just just from uh, from Kavanaugh. Uh, I, I, I think he could have taken this all by affidavit. And, you know, if any of the senators wanted to hear some of these witnesses, I guess they could have brought them in. I wouldn't have done that. I would have just said, you know, we're moving on to a vote. He says he didn't do it. They said he did do it. Read what they say. You want to hear them out? Fine. Hear them out. But we got to get on to a vote. Andy, can I just ask, how would this have gone? And I know I'm this is a hypothetical here, but I do think it illustrates an, an important point. You know, when you were a, a federal prosecutor in, in New York City for the Southern District, uh, if, if this if it had come across your radar that, uh, you know, somebody for higher office, let's let's say that, you know, instead of what happened where Feinstein got this, 
uh, if somebody came to you and sent an anonymous letter and said, hey, uh, you know, 30 years ago, this happened to me. It's I mean, if it's not in your jurisdiction and you're a federal prosecutor, what would you do anything with it? I mean, would you just refer to the Manhattan D.A.? What would actually happen? You got a lot of stuff like that in the office, Buck. And, you know, what you would do is if if it looked like it was a lead that was worth pursuing on a live case, you would give it to an investigative agency if the federal government when I, I was a federal prosecutor. So um, if the federal government had jurisdiction over the potential crimes, uh, you would refer it to the appropriate agency. If it was drugs, it would probably go to DEA. If it was most things, it would go to the FBI. Um, but you get the you get the drift. If it was time barred, or if it was something that looked like it couldn't possibly be proved, um, you, you know, you you might respond to the person and say thank you very much for your letter, but you wouldn't do anything with it. And if it looked like something you didn't have jurisdiction over, but the state did, and it looked like it was a decent lead, uh, you pass it on to the district attorney and make right. I, so I guess one follow-on after you. So at the at the state level, when you're working with with like the Manhattan DA, if somebody goes to the Manhattan DA and says this bad thing happened to me, let's say ten years ago, and they have the right. date, they have, and, and no matter what it is, if that crime based on the incident is beyond the statute of limitations, does the do, do they investigate it anyway, or what do they do? No, no, because there's a finite number of investigators and prosecutors, and there's more prosecutable crime than we have resources to throw at it. So you don't throw resources at stuff that you can't investigate and prosecute. Right. And then that that then gets us to what I see going on here, which is people keep saying, well, the president should order an FBI investigation, an FBI investigation of vague allegations from 30 years ago. I mean, this would be the only thing the FBI would be doing for the next, you know, month or two. I mean, it's just that that's right. But plus, um, since the thing is time barred and the FBI doesn't have jurisdiction over the alleged crime anyway, and no state prosecutor would take it because it's so time barred, the best thing possible that you could get in this situation is either testimony or an affidavit from the witnesses, which is what Congress is going to get. So, you know, that's better than having the FBI do it because the FBI is not going to conduct a full-blown criminal investigation of an allegation of sexual assault that happened 36 years ago that the FBI doesn't have jurisdiction over and that Maryland wouldn't take. And and by the way, people keep saying, oh, Maryland doesn't uh, Maryland doesn't have a statute of limitations for uh, for sex crimes. Uh, does that if that was passed? Has that always been the case, Andy? Do we know? I mean, that, that just seems, it seems like that gets batted around a lot by people now on TV. And I wonder, was that a retroactive? Yeah. And how does that work? But, 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 but the thing is, there's state law and then there's the Constitution, right? The, the, the state, first of all, I don't know that it's true that every single sex crime has no statute of limitations. I don't know, for example, if this kind of an assault, um, you know, this is not a rape. Which wasn't a rape. Yeah, I was going to say, Andy. I mean, can we just be... It feels weird to say that, but there's not even an allegation of rape here. Rape, your prosecutor, requires some kind of physical penetration. Right, and the only reason I bring it up to distinguish it is it may well be, I don't know the law of Maryland, it may well be that rape doesn't have a statute of limitations, but this kind of an assault does. I don't know. But the point is, this is 36 years old, and no matter what a state 
statute of limitations says, or even the lack of one, the federal constitution, which has been applied by the Supreme Court to the states in this particular, requires that you have a speedy trial. Um, and at a certain point, there's no fixed point of when it is, uh, but at a certain point, if something is so stale that you can't mount a defense, you're not in a position anymore to investigate you know, things like Somebody, somebody, makes I got, yeah, somebody grabbed somebody's butt 30 years ago would fall. You know, I mean, right, yes, you I see, see. I see you're saying no, but you want to see the clothes. You want to see the scratches. You want to they've they've withheld information about this and made it impossible for a person to do what the Constitution allow, uh, guarantees them, which is to mount your defense. So if you strategically delay something or even if you don't strategically delay it, but you delay it so long that as a practical matter, a person can't do what the Sixth Amendment guarantees, which is defend himself, then your speedy trial right is gone, whether or not the state has a statute of limitations. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't know that. I really appreciate the clarification, and that's good for everyone listening to this to hear. Andy, we haven't even talked about Rosenstein yet. Can we hit a quick break and come right back and ask you yeah, about what's going on? Yep, yep. All right, we got Andy McCarthy here with us from National Review, folks. We'll be right back. Okay, so we're back with Andy McCarthy here. We were talking to him at some length about just the realities of this of this allegation. Andy agrees with me. The guy's got 20-plus years of federal prosecutor. This whole thing, it's a hit, as I've been saying all along. Andy came out on, in National Review and said it's a hit. It was a really important piece, I think, helped turn the tide of, of belief for folks that want to know what's going on here. But Andy, Rod Rosenstein, it's been quite a week for him, too. He was going to resign. He was going to get fired. Oh, no, turns out neither's going to happen. He's got a meeting with the president tomorrow what do you just walk us through a bit of Rod Rosenstein's resistance? That's your piece in National Review. What do we need to know about this guy? Well, I think what happened here, you know, it, it, it's interesting, Buck. They keep saying, you know, he he talked about tape recording the president, wiretapping him, and invoking the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Now, I think that there were conversations about that because. If there were not, he would have flatly denied it. I think too many people probably heard it or know about it that they could credibly deny it. So what the spin on it now is that, well, we're just joking. And I think what happened is that he was not serious. I think Rosenstein's a good enough lawyer that the, the 25th Amendment, for example, which is about removing or at least suspending the powers of a president who has a medical disability – had absolutely nothing to do with the situation, right? So I don't think he was serious about that, but I do think he was signaling. And what I, what I really believe happened here is he wrote this memorandum for Trump. He apparently, according to the Times reporting, he was quite enthusiastic about doing it, uh, about Comey, that everybody knew was going to be the um, rationale for removing the FBI director. In fact, at the end of the memo, Rosenstein goes on about the, the president's authority to remove the FBI director. So it's no mystery what this was about. But I think that Rosenstein miscalculated. And, and Buck, it's important to understand here, Rosenstein is a guy who has always had good relations with Democrats. He was a U.S. attorney in a deep blue state, even though he's nominally a Republican. At a time when Trump was having trouble getting nominees through the Senate, he sailed through on a vote of 94 to 6. Um, so he's a guy who cares about his relations with, uh, with, with both sides of the aisle, as they say. And I think that when he wrote this memo about Comey, 
he he was so indulgent of Mrs. Clinton in it, and relied on Jamie Gorelick, and you know it was all bipartisan and and very solicitous of the Democrats. And I think he expected that because Democrats blamed Comey for Mrs. Clinton's law. Oh, Andy, we lost you. He was going to be applauded. And it turned out that they went, you know, anybody, you know, should have been able to see that by then the Democrats had moved on from Mrs. Clinton's loss. And now they were regarding Comey as useful because he was investigating Trump. So the firing of Comey was an opportunity to say that Trump was was obstructing the investigation and they ripped into so you think he misread that he misread the politics he did and i think after that he had to show that he was still on the right team so you know it was uh, let's talk about wiretapping the president let's talk about removing the president because he's a lunatic under the 25th amendment badmouth the president that he's like you know he's terrible in these meetings that we're having to try to replace comey interviewing candidates um you know, I, I think that what happened here is for a number of days he was reeling after the Comey, after the Comey thing, which was botched. I mean, there's no doubt that, that Trump, you know, gave alternate con- contradictory in, uh, explanations for firing Comey. But I think the most important thing here, Buck, is the timeline. At the same time he's talking about the 25th Amendment, he issues the order, the appointment of Mueller. And there was no more legal basis for that than there was for the 25th Amendment. But I think it sh- he, he was at a point in time where he needed to show that he was still, you know, with the people who were uh, who were shredding him at that time. You know, what what do you make of of this? You know, I, I interviewed a congressman today, a Democrat, who's saying, oh, it would be a constitutional crisis if Trump fired Rosenstein. I, I don't understand doesn't the president have the right to fire Rosenstein or does he not have the right to fire Rosenstein? Now I'm being told it's a constitutional crisis and he should be impeached if he fires Rosenstein. Yeah, well, that, but that's, see, it's the same thing that they did with Comey. You know, what they're basically saying is, yes, the president has the power to, to do this, but this president doesn't have the powers that other presidents have because he's under investigation and firing Rosenstein would interfere with the investigation. In the meantime, Firing Rosenstein would just mean somebody else would be running the investigation in the sense that Mueller would still be running the investigation, but he would have a different boss than Rosenstein. And I'm sure that might not uh, float Mueller's boat, but it would mean the investigation came to an end. Um, and now I, I must say, Buck, what I the think heck he's is, not going. What the to heck fire is going on with with? Yeah, I don't think he, I don't think he's either. It'd be, it'd be self defeating at this point. I, th- I think that they exposed quite honestly that 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 Rosenstein's probably a leaker. Uh, I mean, meaning that he leaks to the media about things. I, I think that he was the one that got the word out that he thought he was going to get fired. But that's me. Uh, but but Andy, where's this this Mueller thing? Is this just going to grind on for you know another year? I mean, what is this? Well, one of the I don't think so, Buck. I think he's he's actually getting toward the end. Uh, I, I think he needed to to wrap up the uh, the Manafort piece, and he obviously he wants to talk to Trump. They'll either work that out or they won't. But I think one of the reasons that that uh, Rosenstein won't be fired is if Mueller is at the end, I don't think Trump is going to want to give an opportunity for him to reopen the whole uh, obstruction thing. And this would be like Comey times three, right? If he if he were to move, uh, you know, the media will go crazy, the Democrats will go crazy. I think Trump and the people around him are probably saying to him, you know, look, 
going into the midterms, we need to project as much uh, stability at the Justice Department as we can. And you don't want to give Mueller an opportunity to to reopen the whole uh, obstruction thing. You want this investigation to come to an end. And I think for those reasons, he'll leave Rosenstein in place, even though he'd probably like to terminate him. All right. Well, Andy, I know you're going to be uh, you'll be on Fox Biz later and uh, also on, on all kinds of shows. Please uh, keep up the good work. Andy McCarthy, everybody, National Review, read his pieces, see him on Fox News. Andy, thank you so much for joining, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. So uh, thanks, Andy. So, you know, guys, we've whew, man uh, so much covered so much ground with Andy. Um, coming up in the third hour, I want to tell you a bit about what uh, Trump has been up to with the United Nations. Yeah, the U.N. General Assemblies this week, it's like nobody's even noticed, really. I'm talking about Venezuela and Iran, and then also someone who is turning the uh, racial spoils system against itself through an interesting and uh, t- technologically uh, creative means. I will uh, tell you about that and oh, so much more coming up in just a moment. So we needed a few employees in the Hill offices this summer when I first started my new show down there, and we didn't want to waste any time. You know what's not smart? Go to a job site where you're getting resumes that you don't want to see because they're nowhere near the kind of candidates you're looking for. And you know what else isn't smart? Not knowing if you're reaching all the best possible candidates. But what is smart is what we did, which is hire great people using ZipRecruiter. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck and you too can hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why we got great people that work with me now through ZipRecruiter. You can go to ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash buck and you can try it. That's right. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. Not long ago, Venezuela was one of the richest countries on earth. Today, socialism has bankrupted the oil-rich nation and driven its people into abject poverty. President Trump at the United Nations this week, and he's telling it like it is. And I think he's done a a really strong job of letting the world know just where he stands and where America under a Trump administration stands. I think it's been excellent. But but you're calling out Maduro of Venezuela, who made a surprise landing in New York City today. Uh, Calling out Venezuela, I think, is absolutely the right thing to do. A few thoughts on this for you. One is that you should not you know, you should not ever lose sight of the fact that there were very prominent publications in this country who were writing glowing things about about uh, Hugo Chavez, Maduro's uh, predecessor as the premier of Venezuela. But that when you look at Venezuela, it's not just that it is a case of of socialism uh, that has run amok. You know, I think people like to talk about this and say, oh, it's you know, if we pursue Bernie Sanders policies, we will be in a similar situation to Venezuela. The truth is that there are some specific parts of how Venezuela got to be what it is that we should we should look at that and understand. Well, that's what led to this. Right. That's why it that's why a country with as I know everyone repeats this phrase, but it or repeats this fact. It's so important, though, that the country with the 
highest proven oil reserves in the world is effectively bankrupt. Really, really worse than bankrupt. I mean, it's so deeply indebted. It's inflating away its currency. It's trying to create cryptocurrencies. I mean, it's just, it's in a, it's in terrible shape. I mean, it is spiraling into failed state status. Uh, and what the left does not want you to take away from this is that two of the the biggest reasons for this are that one, Venezuela and the whole Bolivarian revolution. You go back to Simon Bolivar and this whole notion of a of a uh, leftist Marxist Latin American government of the people, which we have seen play out unfortunately in far too many countries to our south in this hemisphere. Uh, that it is rooted deeply in social justice and envy and inequality among different people in a society. And despite the fact that in places like Brazil, you have radical inequality, uh, these governments, successive governments come in and do not address this in any meaningful way. All they do is just destroy everything that is working in the country. So Venezuela is not just a place where they have socialism. You can be more specific than that. They have social justice driving economic decisions. Uh, and then price controls. That is a major takeaway from the Venezuelan disaster as part of the uh, redistribution of wealth to the, the working class or the poor. Venezuela would put these price controls on whether it was consumer goods, electronics, uh, things people need in their home, all the way down to food, you know, milk, bread, water, all that kind of stuff. And by putting price controls in place, you can say the price is whatever you want. In Venezuela, I mean, it doesn't matter. And Maduro has done this. You can say that a washing machine costs the equivalent of, you know, 200 U.S. dollars, when in reality, because of the market there, it's going to cost you 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever it may be. You know, you could say that a roll of toilet paper is 50 cents, but if it costs you five dollars to get it on the street because that's what the market price is, that's what you're going to pay. So social justice and price controls are what have led this country into despair i mean it is it is a country that is and it just keeps getting worse and there's tremendous violence uh corruption i think the number three president in venezuela and maybe even the number two i think the vice president or maybe it's the head of the dominant political party is a known and sanctioned narco trafficker so you uh, imagine if the if the you know vice president of this country was trafficking huge amounts of of cocaine and, and heroin and whatever else and this, this was known, but, you know, it's just the way that it is. And and of, and the regime in power just says, well, that's, you know, Yankee imperialists are lying about that. That's not really true. And it's all supposed to just be left at that somehow. That's what the people of Venezuela are, are dealing with right now. Trump made a very interesting comment, however, at the U.N. And this one got me, uh, this one got my attention. Play clip three. All options are on the table. Everyone. The strong ones and the less than strong ones. Every option. And you know what I mean by strong. All options are on the table, he says. And that was in response to possible regime change in Venezuela. Now, you should know that the Venezuelan government has a long-standing policy of claiming that an American-backed coup is imminent that America or the CIA or any number of nefarious, uh, you know, Norte Americano uh, interlopers 
are trying to they're they're the ones behind all this. They're the ones that are are ruining things. And it's a classic dictator tactic. You got to find some vague but menacing enemy and blame all of your problems on them. All the way back to go back and read Orwell's Animal Farm, which I really do recommend to all of you. I mean, if you read it as a kid in high school or don't worry, go back and read it now. You'll read it in a day. It's a great read and it is such a profound uh, description of communism and totalitarianism. And the usage of Snowball, remember Napoleon and Snowball are the two pigs that lead the revolution. Snowball, who is a stand-in for Trotsky in this whole theory, uh, as the bad guy that every time something goes wrong on the farm, it's Snowball's fault. America is Snowball in this analogy. You know, Venezuela is Napoleon, the other pig, and, and we are Snowball. Everything that goes wrong is our fault. So it's not a good idea in general for America to be talking about the possibility of any kind of uh, overthrow of the government or anything else. Although, you know, maybe Trump is, you know, who knows what Trump's got, got up his sleeve here. Because, because the country is so bad at this point that you've got to wonder how long, it could, how long the regime can really even hold on. They've used violence against protesters. There's the, the overall criminality is, is off the charts. I'm not really sure what the, the future plan is here. I don't know what the Trump administration thinks they're going to do, but there's definitely something... Uh, something that needs to be done about all of this. And I just briefly on uh, on Iran, um, we have Trump saying the following on the Iran deal. Play clip five. So many countries in the Middle East strongly supported my decision to withdraw the United States from the horrible 2015 Iran nuclear deal and reimpose nuclear sanctions. The Iran deal was a windfall for Iran's leaders. In the years since the deal was reached, Iran's military budget grew nearly 40 percent. The dictatorship used the funds to build nuclear-capable missiles, increase internal repression, finance terrorism, and fund havoc and slaughter in Syria and Yemen. All of that is true. These are facts. And on the other side of this debate, you have uh, Rouhani, the Iranian premier, who is supposed to be a moderate, and in, but that's all. Iranian moderates, this is r- really, in the government there at that level, is really a fiction. Uh, but he- here's what Rouhani says about what Trump is doing at the United Nations, play six. It is unfortunate that we are witnessing rulers in the world who think they can secure their interests better, or at least in the short term ride public sentiments and gain popular support through the fomenting of extremist nationalism and racism and through xenophobic tendencies resembling a Nazi disposition, as well as through the trampling of global rules and undermining international institutions, even through preposterous and abnormal acts such as convening a high-level meeting of the Security Council. Uh, Rouhani, everybody, is supposed to be the, the moderate, as I said, and he's calling Trump essentially a Nazi. So what we really learned about Rouhani is that he needs to get his own show on MSNBC. You know, somebody would tell Reverend Al he's got to move aside. It's time to get Rouhani a show, you know resist we much 
Uh, R e s p i c t. I wish we. I wish we had that. We should just have that handy anytime. R e s p i c t. Oh man, that was good. Good times. Really was. Uh, I I enjoyed it so so much. Um, all right, we got a big story coming up here about a guy who is turning the racial spoil system against itself. That's coming up. It's an honor and a privilege to get to talk to you every day in the Freedom Hut. But, you know, there are a lot of things that matter to us as a country that you want to be able to be heard whenever you feel like it. And you don't want to have to worry about Google or Facebook or Twitter, all these major platforms out there, these huge behemoths in the digital space, engaging in conversational health editing or trying to find ways to skew the conversation in favor of progressive interests. If you want a place where there is no left-wing agenda at work, a new social media site where you don't have to worry about shadow banning or any of that other stuff, try Snippy.com. Snippy.com is a new social media platform that has no agenda and none of the nonsense that you're seeing on these other platforms. It's a place where people can go and express their thoughts, frustrations, and ideas, anything, honestly. You can write about what's on your mind, upload photos, strike up a conversation about whatever you feel like. Snippy.com, totally free to join, totally free to post. Go start an account now, snippy.com. It's getting lost in a crazy news week, but I think this is a story that should be the beginning of a whole movement, really. Let me give you some of the details. This is from the New York Post. Man claims to be a minority business owner after DNA test shows he is 4% African. An insurance agent claims he should qualify as a minority business owner because of he's 4% African, enough he believes to make him, quote, a certified black man. Ralph Taylor knows that on the outside, he looks like an average white guy, but he is, he is trying to use the results from his ancestry DNA test to bolster his business in Linwood, Washington. I've always known I'm multiracial, the 50-year-old, a 55-year-old declared to the Washington Post. The 2010 test shows that he's 90% European, 6% indigenous, indigenous American, and 4% sub-Saharan African. I am a certified black man, he stated. I'm certified black in all 50 states, but the federal government doesn't recognize me. Taylor is now in the midst of a legal battle with Washington state and the federal government for ultimately denying him the minority business owner qualification for his Orion insurance group. The designation would give him a leg up in nabbing government contracts. His case which poses the complex question of how race is defined, is pending before the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. Uh, Taylor used his DNA results in 2013 to get his business certified with Washington's Office of Minority and Women's Business Enterprises. But officials there said he was a, wasn't a visibly identifiable minority. He accused the agency of cherry-picking whom to approve without having any clear guidelines. There's no objective criteria and they're picking winners and losers, he said. Taylor won his appeal. In 2014, his application for minority status was approved. My, my, my. Um, this is this is exactly what I knew would happen. Uh, and that was all, by the way, those I wanted to give you the details. That was courtesy of the Washington, that were from the Washington Post. I, now, I don't think he should go around saying he's a certified black man. I, I think that he's being uh, uh, more inflammatory than he needs to be. But I do think his underlying point here, because uh, clearly he's not black, but his, his underlying point here is valid. 
which is that the federal government, and we don't get to talk about it very much, we're not supposed to talk about it, the federal government has what Justice Scalia called in a Supreme Court opinion a racial spoils system, meaning that people of certain races get certain benefits under law from the government. And there are many of us who find this quite troubling, who find it unjust, in fact, who believe that it is an obvious, clear-cut, due process and equal protection under the law violation. And this does force them to deal with the results of of this kind of a policy, right? This forces the government to say, well, you're only 5%, quote, African. So that means that you're not African up. Well, then we ask, well, what about if somebody is is uh, biracial? What if somebody has a a African-American father and a white mother or an African-American mother and a white father? Does that, because we know that Barack Obama had that uh, lineage and he was considered the first black president. So is 50% the number? What about if you have a black grandparent and uh, have a complexion that, you know, is is closer to African-American than your, you know, your whatever, run-of-the-mill white guy? You know, what is the cutoff? And just having this conversation forces this very uncomfortable, you know, racial policy balancing discussion where we're talking about percentages and how much of you are this and that. And, and but there's real there's there's money at stake. I mean, we're talking about federal government contracts. There could be really serious money at stake here. And this goes to expose, I think, how quite honestly, how absurd the the system is. And this guy is flat out saying uh, it's not a fair system. Hopefully what comes out of this is that the system is broken we work, uh, and then the Office of Minority and Women's Employment or Women's Business Enterprise said that, quote, we work really hard to be fair. Nothing is just black and white, end quote. Okay, but isn't it black and white? I'm confused. They're telling him that he is, he is literally his skin color is not dark enough for him to qualify. But there's no skin color test for this job or for this, uh, this program. So how do they make that designation? There's an obvious level of subjectivity to this. And, you know, we we should be forced to grapple. This is a matter of law. This is a matter of federal government policy. And I will tell you that I haven't had an ancestry DNA test yet, but I know some members of my family have. And I am at least some percentage Native American. And if I were to be either trying to get government contracts as a small business owner or if I were applying to graduate school... I would have no qualms establishing myself as of Native American heritage based on my DNA results and submitting that and saying, I would like to apply for, uh, you know, I, I, I am claiming Native American heritage here and I uh, would like special consideration for your, you know, your, your law school, for example. Now, I know that people get very testy about this. They get very upset, but that's because the truth here is that there is a racial spoil system. And that a lot of people who benefit from it and who have set it up on the left don't want to talk about what's really going on. They just like it to exist without it being discussed. Well, I'm sorry. You don't get to have government policy that is, in fact, picking winners and losers and just say, well, you're not allowed to you're not allowed to talk about it. This is part of why affirmative action. I know I've, I have never lost an affirmative action debate with anybody. And I'm pretty honest about this stuff. I've never even I've never felt myself cornered because it's just so flatly and obviously uh, incorrect policy from the standpoint of 
equal protection, due process in the Constitution. It just is. There's no way around it. It's a racial spoil system. Now, you could say that as a policy matter, it was necessary for a limited period of time because of the history of slavery. But to that, I always would say, but it's not just about being black. It's also uh, affirmative action uh, involved for a long time was was very much involving women. And that's where you get Title IX. And affirmative action also is about Hispanic and Latino Americans. And affirmative action is now extended to international students and the LGBTQ community. And well, what is this? It's really the codification of the intersectionality, you know, all the different groups that the left puts people in. It's the codification of that at the federal level, and it's just wrong. It's just wrong. And I think the left should be should have to grapple with the reality of what it is pushing, what it is saying, and how it gets us there. So I don't know if I'm going to apply as a Native American to anything anytime soon. I haven't had my test result. Maybe I'm 20%. You know, I guess, I don't know, it wouldn't work that way because my siblings... You know, okay, fine. Maybe I'm not 20, but you know, who knows? Maybe I'm adopted. I don't know. Just kidding, mom and dad. But uh, you know, I got to see what my results are. And maybe I'd pick a a preferred ethnicity and apply because I do disagree with the program. And I think this is almost a form of civil disobedience, although it's scientifically backed. I'm all for it. I say go to it. Wanted to take a moment to tell you about a little bit of upcoming events uh, we're gonna have quite a quite a conversation I think uh, next few days which is gonna mean that the show will be uh, really interesting but also next week I'm gonna be doing some traveling uh, the plan right now is for uh, me to be in Las Vegas for a few days at the Stansbury research conference those Stansbury guys are awesome I, I just say this to you if you I work with them on a podcast uh, you should Uh, If you're interested in learning about finance, they've taught me about finance and I'm an investor now because of working with them uh, or a more sophisticated investor, at least because I've been working with them and I'll be out there in Vegas. Uh, You can watch it streaming online. There's some really interesting guest speakers. My buddy PJ O'Rourke will be out there and some others. So that's uh, stansburyvegas.com. Stansburyvegas.com, I believe, is where you can check all that out. And then also I'm going to be speaking in Orange County. Next week, just uh, about 30 minutes outside of San Diego, uh, I will be uh, there with an organization called Freedom Frontline, and we are going to be having a, it's October 4th, so it's next Thursday, I'm going to be giving a speech, go to freedomfrontline.com, again, if you're in the San Diego area, if you're in Orange County, California, and you can come hang out team, it'd be great to see you, they're going to have food, it's a luau theme, it's going to be a lot of fun. And we're, we're going to light it up. I mean, I'm going to stay. And that also means that that night I'll be off of uh, radio. That's why my buddy, the godfather, uh, Mike Opelka, will be in for me that day. Uh, so there'll be a couple of days next week that I have to be away from the hut, which I feel like I feel like I'm leaving, you know, my beloved family behind while I go off and do some of these things. But it does give me a chance to see some some people uh, in on the team face to face. Like I said, freedomfrontline.com if you uh, want to come hang out. And we'll be talking about the midterms. There's a a local host, Brett uh, Winterbly, um, uh, who's going to be there as well. He is going to be talking about the midterms. He's a San Diego radio host. So a lot of of good stuff happening, a lot of things going on there. And I am really looking forward to it. Uh, So just want to let you know, a couple of days next week, uh, which means that the next few days here on radio, I am planning on really making it count because man we got a lot of stuff to get through and uh, that's going to be a perfect way to get a little transition going into roll call up next 
Team Buck rallies together now. Liberty, truth, and great hair. Feel those funky beats. It's time for Roll Call. Indeed it is. And man, am I happy that I get to kick back, relax, and, and talk to the team. You know, my, my family, which is, uh, my family's all up in New York, and you know, they've, they've been saying to me, you know, I know you're in the swamp, and it feels a little, a little weird down there sometimes uh, for a conservative, but the good news is you get to send out the, the bat signal for, for Team Buck every night and talk to them on radio. And I said, absolutely. This is, this is my sanity talking to all of you and, and knowing your thoughts and getting to hear from you. So uh, with that, I want to get right to it, which is usually what I say when I'm waiting for all the messages to load up, which they're doing right now. William writes, Hey, Buck, great show as always. I do have to dis- disagree with one point. You often make the argument that the pink pea hat wearing libs use Roe as a moral crutch to justify their support for abortion. I feel you make this argument because you try to rationalize how they can hold such an immoral belief and still think of themselves as rational beings. But I have spoken with these people, and I feel that they do not use Roe to justify their beliefs. They simply dehumanize the baby. They speak of it as the fetus, as if it is just a parasite that has infected them. Roe is just a means to an end for them. In their minds, they need no justification. They happily embrace their delusions. Shields high. William, what you're saying is true, but I, I think that, if I may, what I'm saying is true as well. Uh, yes, they, they have convinced themselves of this scientifically illiterate notion that a fetus is not a human being. A fetus is very obviously a human being. And so, and that's why the fact that they allow abortions even when a fetus is, quote, viable, uh, just goes to show you. And viability is a, uh, is a changing figure over time. And in fact, fetuses that would certainly not have survived, say, 50 years ago or even 20 or 30 years ago are becoming fully, you know, grown, happy, healthy human beings, uh, even if they have a very early delivery date. They're very premature. So I, I think it's both, but I appreciate where you're coming from on that. And thank you very much for writing in. Alan writes, Buck, the allegations are getting crazier by the hour. Is there some way that Judge Kavanaugh can sue Swetnick for libel or slander? Better yet, can she be charged with a crime? It seems the only way to stop such irresponsible behavior. Well, you you raise a couple of issues here, Alan. As to whether she could be sued for uh, libel uh, or for slander, well, it could be both, depending on which thing we're talking about. It's hard to sue somebody for libel or slander. It's a difficult process. There's a high bar in this country. Very different in the United Kingdom, for example, than it is here. That said, if in fact she is found to have fabricated something in her sworn deposition, then I believe that the uh, law enforcement authorities have an absolute obligation to punish her for that. Uh, Truth can't just be a one-way street, right? It can't just be the accuser must speak truthfully under oath or in a sworn affidavit or else. It must also be incumbent upon the accuser to speak truthfully. Uh, and th- so I, I think that we'll have to see how this plays out. But as I've noted with you all earlier on the show, 
the way that the third accuser's uh, Swetnick's allegation is worded and, and the real the real meat of it, if you will, is very hard to disprove. It's almost unfalsifiable. And I believe that's by design. I think it's because she did not want to subject herself to the possibility of getting nailed for perjury. Uh, and I, I do think that these women are either delusional or lying. And I want to be very upfront about that, as I have been the whole time. Delusional could mean that they think that something like this happened to them and Kavanaugh was involved. But keep in mind, uh, or rather they've mistakenly thought that Kavanaugh was involved, keep in mind that the third accuser doesn't actually say that Kavanaugh did anything to her. She just claims to have witnessed this kind of behavior. Uh, and I, in many ways, I find her to be the least credible of all of these allegations and certainly the most sensational. And I think that's purposeful, as I have been saying. Uh, Josh writes, uh, didn't someone on the right get berated for this exact same thing? And he sent me a clip. It says, Stephen interviews Fox News interview, uh, interviews Fox News interview of Brett Kavanaugh. Huh. No, I, I'm not sure what you're talking about there, my friend. Are you talking about when an Ocasio-Cortez interview uh, was used for spoof purposes by Ali Stuckey? That's, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess people do use sort of fake interviews for purposes of satire sometimes. Lori writes, Buck, loyal listener for the last five years. Always appreciate your bottom line, practical analysis to help me wrap my head around the political chaos. But you're too great a wordsmith to be misspelling your podcast title. I blame producer Mike. Not really, but it couldn't possibly be your fault, right? Dazzle, shields high. Producer Mike, you got to get a code red. This is all, I'm not, no, 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 buddy. I'm not, I'm not falling on my sword for this one. Producer Mike is in charge of podcast titles. Producer Mike was probably busy on his way to uh, Shea Handsome Guy, the new French restaurant where he takes some of the ladies when he's going out for a nice night on the town. And just had a little typo there. But uh, if there's going to be a code red for a misspelling, it's going to be producer Mike. I did not order the code red, but maybe producer Mike needs to get one for that. Uh, let's see what we have next here. Um, hold on one second. Uh, Randy writes, hey, Buck, is this where you send roll call? I love when people do that and I write, I, I read it on the show. Uh, you were my first guest host for Rush, and now I've gone from listening to Rush to only listening to you. Hey, I've been a Black Rifle subscriber since 2015, and that is all I drink. You've also got me drinking Strike Force now as well. Strike Force! Uh, if you have not seen Range 15 yet, you've got to watch it. It's on Amazon Prime. Black Rifle also helped produce it. It's all military humor. Thank you for your show. Shields high, Randy. Well, Randy, thank you for being a really strong supporter who also... You know, puts his puts his money where his heart is when it comes to this show. And uh, it means a lot. I mean, every time somebody puts in one of those offer codes, I tell you during our, our our live reads with the sponsors that we have on the show. Remember, those sponsors, this is not like I'm getting Pepsi to just say, Oh yeah, we'll give you a million dollars to have you run, you know, banner ads or something. I mean, the sponsors that I work with are people that I know, people that care about the show and that are are willing to be partners. So whenever you support them and use the offer code that I give you, which is usually slash buck at the end of the uh, URL address, you are voting to support this show. It really, really does matter. And I, I need to, I, I like to be explicit with you about all about that, folks, because, you know, this is this is my life's work and I love it every day. You know, it's also a business. And I sit here and talk to you about 
all the different ways that I wish conservatives would take more action in support of their ideals. Well, when someone's giving you a, a free product, uh, but they're also partnering with ad, with sponsors and advertisers, the way you show support for that otherwise free product is to go check out the sponsors and advertisers. So it really does mean a lot, and it, it matters, and I thank you for it. So Randy, Shields High, and a double high five for you. Shannon writes... Hey, Buck, I'm in the swamp for a few days for work, and boy, is it swampy. On my flight from Dallas, I sat by a producer from CNN that works on Chris Cuomo's show. It was horrible hearing her talk about booking Maisie Hirono and Cory Booker. All I could think of was how much I disliked Bro Cuomo. It wasn't a pleasant flight. Now I'm leaving my event and just saw Alyssa Milano with a Stop Kavanaugh sign in my hotel lobby. This madness needs to stop, and he needs to be confirmed. Needless to say, I'm ready to get back to Dallas. I don't know how you live here. Shields high, Shannon. Shannon, it's crazy here. And it is it is swamptastic in, in every way and getting swampier. So uh, I will... Fiola is the name of the restaurant that I'm going to be going to next when I take Miss Molly out for a night on the town. That's the restaurant that brought back Ted Cruz and his wife after they were chased away by a mob of maniacs. So that's where I'm going to be eating going forward. Uh, and I'll let you know how. I've heard the food is excellent, and I look forward to going there. By the way, they're not conservative. Fiola's not saying, oh, yeah, we agree with Ted Cruz. They're just saying, we are a restaurant. They put out a statement. We are a restaurant, and we want people to come here to relax, have great food, and have a great experience, regardless of their political beliefs. As long as they're respectful to our staff and to other customers, they are welcome here. And that's... You know, every restaurant in America should be taking that point of view and restaurants that do to my earlier point about supporting places that share your values and, you know, make it count. Don't just be, you know, don't just say, oh, yeah, they're great, but I'm not going to shop there. Oh, they're great, but I'm not going to go check out their their sponsors or go eat their food. I'm going to Fiola. It's now top of my list. And I'll let you know how the food is. Uh, And I'm sure they're probably all booked up now after Ted Cruz's incident there. Timothy writes, Buck Shields High, regarding the marriage segment on your Tuesday show, I believe it simply comes down to level of commitment. If one party always has an eye on the back door, the marriage is set up for failure. Both parties have to enter marriage with the understanding that they will battle through everything together, and there's no easy way out. My better half and I have been happily married for over 15 years with four kids. The eldest is going to start driving soon. It's not easy, but endlessly rewarding. If you and your better half are ever in Michigan, you're always welcome at our house. Timothy, you are very kind, my friend. Thank you for that offer. And also, uh, you know, God bless and congrats. 15 plus years of marriage, four kids. All these great people that listen to this show, all these great people that are a part. I really don't even like to say listen to this show, although I know that's what people are doing across the country, but a part of this show. Because if you listen, you are a part of it. You're a part of this, uh, this community. Um, and, and it is very meaningful to me. And I think I, in some ways appreciate you all or y'all, cause I've been given Southern privileges for that word. I appreciate y'all more than ever before. Now that I'm here in the swamp and I already appreciated you a lot, but man, it is just madness out there. You know, I, I don't know what to say about it. Uh, Susan writes, I'm addicted to your podcast. Could you try to get my blog post to the Kavanaugh's? I want them to know about my support. Well, Susan, thank you for your podcast addiction. I will say that's a healthy addiction. I support addiction to the Buck Sexton podcast wholeheartedly. And as to trying to get that, I, I do not know how to get something directly to the Kavanaugh's right now. They are quite busy, 
but I will give it a read myself, and I'll try to uh, pass along the good news, or the uh, good word, rather, not the good news. Uh, Mike writes, Greetings, Mr. Sexton. Uh-oh. While I am normally one to dispense with formal salutations, you have quite a badass last name. First off, I am a huge fan. I introduced my crane operator to your podcast, and now we listen to it daily without respite. Having thus established my bona fides, I would like to offer some constructive criticism. Up, oh, I saw this. In some of your podcasts, especially the Trump UN podcast, you make many references to how quickly or early you started expressing certain opinions. To my uh, recollection, almost every segment began with the folks, I was one of the first ones on this, or something to that effect. Though my advice may be unsolicited, my motives are pure, and I think the constant self-aggrandizement is beneath you. You have one of the best shows out there, period. Your analysis is top-notch. You aren't afraid to go out on a limb, which is why Team Buck loves you. I understand how competitive conservative commentary is, and that everyone from Glenn Beck to Levin regularly feel the need to tell us all how they got the proverbial scoop, but it's annoying. You are better than that. And those of us on Team Buck know you are usually the one getting the first bite at the apple. Although it's good to mention you're ahead of the field, I was first, shouldn't be your go-to segue. Shields high, Mike. Well, Mike, I can tell by the way you wrote this note that you mean that uh, critique of the way some of the segments have gone recently in good faith and as somebody that really believes in what we're doing here. So I will tell you that I appreciate it. It is noted, and I will absolutely take it into account going forward. I think I just get a little, you know, I get a little excited when I've made a prediction and it's correct. And I know that tonight I started off the show with a prediction. So you're catching me in a time when I, I cannot deny that that does happen. Uh, and I will take that under advisement. I, I do feel sometimes like there is a lack of appreciation in conservative media for who is right, as in correct on things, who sees things coming versus who is just the loudest and most aggressive once once it's already happened. Uh, those of you who listen to the show know that I have a pretty darn good track record of seeing things coming. Uh, but you're also correct that I shouldn't be reminding everybody. I should leave it to what is the uh, smartest, wisest, and overall most incredible audience in talk radio or any medium for that matter to know that for themselves. So you are the criticism is taken in good faith and appreciated and thank you for being a member of the team and also passing along word of the show. That's going to be it for today, folks. Man, tomorrow is going to be bonkers. Be sure to join me here then. And make sure you know the podcast goes up at 7 Eastern now, nightly. 7 Eastern, the podcast of the show is available. Check it out then. Shields high.